you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, or we're going to work our way towards Isaiah chapter 9, that beautiful, poignant, powerful text uh, that comes each year as a marker that we're inching towards Christmas. But we like to make sure that in the season before Christmas that, that there's enough time to slow down and understand exactly what it is that we're doing. And so for centuries, the church has sort of marked out a series of stages in preparation for Christmas. And the language we use around here is Advent. And I want to say a couple of things just as a way of uh, preparing us to enter into the season. I want to say, first of all, that human beings by nature, we seem to be people who can anticipate We carry within us all of these expectations. That just seems to be part of our nature. And we've done it, I think, at least as I reflect back, I've done it for my whole life. We habitually are pursuing the next thing, right? We constantly desire whatever is next for us. Even when the good days are here, we're haunted by the thought that there's something else ahead. And so we're driven by anticipation by expectation. This is a good thing. I mean, it accounts for so much of human progress and achievement, but it's a bad thing too, because it also accounts for a lot of frustration in human life. Uh, A professor, a counselor said that, that all frustrations are birthed out of unmet expectations. If you see a marriage, it's on fire. If you see a person who's angry, if you see somebody who's busted up and bitter, Here's what's happened. They had expectations that their life would look a certain way, and now it doesn't. And when those things didn't come to pass, the result is anger, bitterness, frustration. I'm not sure about you, but I find this to be true just in so many areas of life. Expectations are met, satisfaction. Expectations are frustrated, and I just revert. I start behaving like a child again. I pout and I sulk and, and I retreat into my own corner. All frustration is birthed out of unmet expectations. But here we are in the middle of a whole season, Advent, which is devoted to that idea of waiting expectantly, of anticipating what's about to happen. And this morning, what I wanted to try and do is to drop an anchor in the middle of the crazy water of, of this frantic season with all of its opportunities and activity, to, to, to drop anchor into something just a little bit deeper and to reclaim that idea of, of expectation and to be able to give it a good object to focus on. Let me say what I'm not saying, too. Uh, I'm no Scrooge. I, I'm no sort of Christmas is pagan and we shouldn't be celebrating it and should hold back the tide on all that secular frivolity. That's that's not me. I'm not that guy, right? Uh, We've had the Christmas lights up outside of our house for weeks now. Uh, The Christmas tunes are blasting through the root stereo in our home. Uh, That's not me, right? And it's not here either. I mean, obviously, this is a season that's important to us. Uh, What I am saying, though, is that there's something in this season that's well, it's a little bit confusing or, or frustrating, and, and it's what one pastor named hyper-reality, because what's get th- what gets thrown at us through 
commercials and advertising and television specials and even all of those classic movies that we love to watch on endless repeat during this season. What gets thrown at us is a view of reality that just doesn't line up with real life. A Tiffany's ring, a fireside proposal, a a zany cross-country trip, uh, a family reunion, even when there's conflict, it's crazy and it's funny and it's good hearted and it ends with us all hugging it out and then gathering around a huge table to have the perfect Christmas turkey, which somehow mysteriously got prepared and, and nobody is seen behind the scenes working away for 17 hours to make that happen. It's, it's a feeling, right? There's a feeling to this time of year and we love the feeling of it. But the feeling of it doesn't always connect with the reality of what our lives are like. And so we've got these four weeks, Advent, to try and get our lives reoriented around a truth that's worth expecting, Uh, to try and get our hearts stirred again by something that should inspire genuine wonder and, and amazement, and to try and at least take some of those expectations that cloud our lives and port them over and land them in a place where they can be really and fully met. Let me say one other thing, just way, by way of preamble, and then we'll, we'll jump in. There's a whole lot that gets said about hypocrisy within the church, about Christian hypocrisy. And there's a lot of it that I wouldn't argue against. But there's also a secular hypocrisy out there, And it's not quite as obvious because it goes unchecked. But let me point it out. Let let me just take one of the the many, many sort of non-spiritual spiritualists of our age. Let's take Oprah, okay? I know she's she's pulled back a little bit, but boy, there was a time when she she had prominence and presence, magazines, her own television station, her show, and Oprah could stand up in front of millions of people and say, Here's what's wrong with you, and here's how you fix it. And people will go, oh my gosh, I just love her. She just, she gets me, right? And, and even when it comes to a guy like Dr. Phil with his brazen ridiculousness, said, well, all this is happening in your life because you're an idiot. And, and we're like, gosh, this guy is amazing. We are idiots. He just needed to tell us. But then you get somebody who stands behind the word of God and says, here's what's wrong with us, and here's how it gets fixed, and all of a sudden people lose their minds. And so what I'm going to ask, what I'm going to try and risk today, is not something that should be foreign. It's something that, you know, Oprah and Dr. Phil and countless others risk all the time. The first thing that, that we really need to state is that Advent and Christmas to which it points exists because there's something that has gone very, very wrong in the world and very wrong in us. Christmas is rooted in brokenness. And maybe that's why we have trouble connecting it with the fairy tale stories that Hollywood likes to peddle during the season. The whole reason Christmas exists is because the world has become deeply fractured. This week we had another test of Canada's new emergency broadcasting system, right? 
155. It was supposed to happen. Did it happen? It didn't really happen. I got a message on my phone, but it was supposed to beep and it was supposed to wake you up. It was supposed to interrupt every YouTube the sort of program that people were surfing and be on the radios. And those of you who grew up in the 60s and 70s will remember what that used to be like when that came on the TV and the screen would go gray and the radio would amp up and it would say, this is a test. This is only a test. Had this been a real emergency, and then we're thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to get nuked, right? Because that's, that's the world that we were living in. Advent is the emergency broadcasting system in the Christian year. It's a reminder that Christmas is borderlined by a a, a deeply fallen and broken world. And what we see in the Bible is that what's broken in you and me is rooted in a severed relationship we have with our Creator. And that leads to all kinds of other stuff. It leads to a brokenness in our own lives. It leads to a brokenness in all the systems that we try and build, families, governments, businesses. And yet the Bible also says this, that in the midst of our rebellion against him, of our accusations that would say, God, we are smarter, more capable, Uh, you owe us nothing and we owe you nothing, God, instead of responding with destruction, intervenes on our behalf. I mean, regardless of what you may have read or heard about God or how you feel that God believes about you, this is what the Bible says. It tells us that the very moment the universe fractured, God began laying out a plan for salvation. Let me show you where. Keep your thumb in Isaiah, but flip back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Here we are, we're just moments after sin first enters the world. And what happens? God shows up. There's a man and a woman, they're hiding themselves. God begins pronouncing judgment. And he speaks at first on the serpent, the devil, the embodiment of evil in the world. And here's what he says, Genesis 3, verse 15. God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and this woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what, what theologians call the proto-evangelical. It's the pre-gospel. It's the gospel before the gospel gets fully formed. There's, there's no build-out yet of the cross. There's no mention of things like atonement or righteousness. All you have at this point is God right there in the middle of the fog of war. And a man and a woman shamed, naked, distressed brokenness. And look at what he says. To the serpent he says, one will be born of this woman and you may breeze his heel, but he will crush your head. I'm no UFC guy, at least not anymore, but, but it seems to me that, that a, broken, a broken or a crushed head beats out a bruised heel every time, doesn't it? The world is still on fire. It's still burning when God says, I'm going to fix this. There's still the smoke of of death and destruction and nothing is settled. This new sin-filled reality has its grip when God says, there will be one, a descendant of this woman, who's going to crush all of this. Now flip ahead to Genesis chapter 12. Keep your thumb still in 
in, in Isaiah, but Genesis chapter 12. This is the verse that we read just a few weeks ago. Again, this is, this is proto-evangelica. This is pre-gospel. God comes to a man named Abram. He's going to become the great father of the nations. The, the whole story of the Old Testament revolves around that group of people. And he says to him, I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the earth shall be blessed. And again, some of you are going to have to ditch some of what we're thinking about God, because the God of the Bible simply doesn't line up with what people say about him. You have in God, in Scripture, somebody who shows up in the midst of human brokenness and rebellion and says, I'm going to crush the head of evil. And then it said, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. We don't have a God who's just strictly vengeful. We have a God who is working on behalf of those in rebellion to mount the greatest rescue effort in the history of the world. With those little uh, bits of background, we're going to jump now into Isaiah. We're going to start in Isaiah 7, actually. Isaiah 7, verses 14 and 15. Are you there? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. It's going to be a miraculous sign. In this working out of salvation, this promise that the head of evil will be crushed, this promise that all the families of the earth are going to get blessed, there's going to be a sign, and here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then this strange description, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Hmm. Listen, I believe in the so-called miracle of life. Uh, It's a beautiful thing. We have three children, uh, an incredible thing. And we like to talk about the miracle of birth. And it situates itself nicely on our cards and in our services. But let me say this. I I was in the room for the birth of all three of our kids. And there was nothing miraculous about it. I mean, the cameras didn't show up the moment they arrived on earth. Nobody was wanting to interview me for a show. They didn't want Karina to sit in and say, it's crazy. I mean, we, we don't know how this happened, right? It wasn't a sign. Because everybody knows, at least biologically, how this happens. It's not a miracle that there were two of us and now there's three. There's a biological explanation for how that happens. But what's different here with this sign is there wasn't two and then three. This is a woman who had never been with a man. The words virgin and conception don't exist in the same sentence Except here they do. It's a sign. It is a miracle. And the second thing to note about the text is this Savior who's about to become the vanguard of God's rescue effort, if you'd like, is going to come not in the way that you would expect God to come, in majesty and regality and pomp and circumstance. He's going to be familiar with poverty. No silver spoon, right? It says he will know curds and honey. What does that mean? That's the diet of a peasant. That's what you eat when you don't have anything else to eat. And we know just in looking at the bare historical facts about Jesus that although he was born 
in Bethlehem, he was raised in Nazareth, which was as podunk a town as you can imagine. Only about 200 people living in Nazareth. That's small. And so we have this prophecy. There's one who's coming, born of a woman, born into poverty. He will crush the head of evil, and through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. But there's something else in the prophecy. He would come from the line of kings. That would make him a king. But not just a king, a prophet. And not just a king and a prophet, but a king, a prophet, and a priest. A combination of three offices that never existed anywhere in the Bible until now. So at last, you've had your thumb in there for a long time. Isaiah chapter 9. Let's come back to that beautiful passage. Let's read verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Jump ahead with me to verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Such familiar words, right? If you spent any time in the church, you've heard these words. If you spent any time in the concert hall, you've heard these words as well. Set the music. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor. Okay. But get this one. Almighty God. Never, never had that been said before about the Savior. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of His peace, there will be no end. This is a turning point in the history of salvation. Almighty God. It's the first time in Scripture that you get the sense that this Savior coming into the world is not merely going to be a human being raised up in order to assume a throne and and drive out Rome and and set up a, a healthy human government. This is God Himself coming to fix what only God could fix, to crush the head of evil, to bless the families of the earth. This will be God Himself in flesh. How's He going to do this? What's it going to look like? Well, conspicuously, it all starts in Galilee. Galilee is the northern entrance to Israel. Israel, as you, as you know geographically, is sort of bounded by, by the sea on one side and a mountain range on the other side. If you want to get to Jerusalem, you've got to go through Galilee. In fact, if you, have to, if you get from the great northern empires of Europe and Asia, if you want to get to the southern power and wealth of places like Egypt, you have to go through that narrow little land bridge. And right there at the vanguard is Galilee. What that meant is that any invading army, army going back and forth landed first in Galilee. So all this talk in verse 1 there about darkness and battle and tumult and marching and blood and fire, there are references to the violent history of poor little Galilee, which had been raped and pillaged and burned to the ground countless times in its miserable history. And what we see in Isaiah is that this dark spot is about to become ground zero for the light of the world. One of the most cursed places on earth will become ground zero for the destruction of oppression and violence and slavery and injustice. And so all of a sudden, he's saying the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I mean, these are people, they've not just been through a rough season. This is a place that's marked by centuries of death and violence 
Nobody vacations in Galilee, right? This is not a family destination spot. If you're in Galilee, the only reason you're there is because you are too poor to be anywhere else. This place of poverty and violence will become ground zero for the divine invasion. Spectacular. Let's just push on one step further. How is it that God now in flesh, Son of God, is going to come and do these things. Crush the head of evil, bless all the families of the earth, combat and eradicate oppression, slavery, and justice. Flip over to one other place. It's also in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, find verses 4 to 6. And if you're like me, whenever I heard these words in the church, I thought, this is Easter. It sounds like a Good Friday and Easter text. Why are we reading it now? Here's why. Christmas and Easter, unless they are held together like twins in the womb, you cannot make sense of one without the other. The whole reason for God coming was Easter. And Easter makes sense of why God came. This is the plan, and this is how it works. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. There He was, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53 is what brings into clear focus Just how God in flesh is going to crush the head of the enemy, bless the families of the earth, and combat oppression, shame, and injustice. He's going to do it by grief-bearing. He'll bear our griefs. He's going to do it by, by iniquity recompensation. He'll pay for our iniquities. He's going to do it through rebellion atonement. For our rebellion, He will make atonement. He's going to account to us a righteousness that is not ours. All that is best and brightest and noble and beautiful and true about Him, He's going to layer it onto us. There should have been no confusion by the time Christ arrived that He was never going to be a military leader. That his coming, that his ministry wouldn't be about military might. It was going to be about something altogether different. This would be about a restart in the soul of man. It's not going to be a moral philosopher, not primarily, or just a teacher or a good ruler. He will be God in flesh doing what only God in flesh could do. And so at last, on December 24th or 25th, when we flip open our Bibles to the gospel stories of Christmas, we read Matthew one twenty one, And so Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. We can know that that comes in answer to a promise It has been working itself out now for centuries. From the very beginning of the rebellion, the fracturing of the universe, the promise repeats itself again and again and again. Who is going to crush the head of the enemy? 
who is going to bless all the families of the earth, who will restore a relationship with our Creator, allow us to have a relationship based not on religious rites and rituals, but actual intimacy. Walking with one who remarkably claims to adopt us and make us sons and daughters of the King. Who is it? The Emmanuel. Jesus. That infant Jesus... When Christmas Eve finally arrives, is the living, breathing sign of the immeasurable love of God. A love that the Bible says God had for us before we were even born. So here's my hope. If if you want to drop anchor into something deeper this season, because let's not pretend that it's going to be gentle and docile over the next few weeks. But if you want to drop anchor into something that, that maybe runs deeper than the hard-flowing river of consumerism and activity, the hyper-reality of the season, can you fix your attention just there for a few minutes? Christmas is a promise. It's, it's the living promise that you are never, ever alone. That God has not given up on you, no matter who you are, where you find yourself in life, what condition you're in, how far you think you may have strayed, the promise is for you. And when you stare at the, the decorations and the lights and, and hear the Christmas jingles, maybe your mind can take you to some place deeper than the set of your favorite holiday musical. And I hope you can see in these visible things the reminder of a much deeper reality. Advent is the beginning of a star-crossed love story. A story that only ends when you find yourself basking in the much brighter light of eternity with God who said, I would rather travel an infinity of time and space to reach you and to leave you alone. And when I find you, I will take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be also. Let's pray. God, thank you for the men and women here in this room, my brothers and sisters. Thank you for the opportunity to sit for a few minutes under your word. Uh, your scripture, we, we read it, but more importantly, it reads us. And God, it has read us this morning. And I pray that the full power of, of, your, of your word would, would be at work in our lives. God, as we move from the word to the table, as we move from the promise of the incarnate Christ to this living, tangible reminder of what he did, would you move with us, surround us with your presence, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.